Hello, and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live a life that brings a little bit more courage and a little bit more love into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Gretchen, and today I am so glad to be a guest host and turning the tables and inviting um, Reverend Sean into conversation. Hey, Sean. Hey, hey, hey. I'm so happy to be here and talking about your Easter sermon today. Yes. Gay Jesus. Yeah, we're going to talk about a little bit about gay Jesus and about um, not just gay Jesus, but queer Jesus. That too. And queer Easter. Um, we're going to hear the sermon in, in a little bit here, but I thought we should just um, chat a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, um, how, are you, how, are you, how did you feel thinking about preaching this sermon? And um, you want to take us back to thinking about... Um, this is at least the first Easter sermon that I've heard you preach. Um, it, so yes. is it your first Easter sermon at all? Yes, this is my first Easter sermon ever. So um, it's a big, big, uh, big move to make your first Easter sermon the queer Jesus sermon. So just you want to step back and kind of walk us through kind of what you were thinking and... Um, what brought you to thinking about offering this message for this year's Easter? You know, I talk about this a little bit in the sermon, but this this topic wasn't premeditated in the sense of I was approaching the story of Easter, um, and I was going back to the um, to the texts uh, of of the Bible. I felt like I was putting my like seminarian hat on. Because I had to do a lot of assignments about the Bible and, and interpretations of it, exegesis—that's the the technical theological word for you know making meaning from the Bible. And it was really in that experience of going back to the text and and knowing what's going on right now for for queer people, for trans people, um, in the in this like cultural moment in which we are being put put in the the crosshairs in a way that we had a reprieve from for 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 a little bit in the in the public spotlight but just it seems like there's this new level of demonization and like demonization of like in the same cruel ways that that was more prevalent in the the 70s, the 80s, the 90s than we've seen in a while. And so with that kind of all in me, as I encountered the text, it was, the queer Jesus was just there. (laughs) And, you know, it's like hard to describe. Like it really is one of those moments of, of reading the text and seeing that he was accused by the crowd of being of perverting the nation and i think it was reading that part of the gospel according to luke that just hit it it was like wow this this charge of perverting the nation is the charge that right now trans and queer people uh are being charged with in in the in the court of the popular culture Mm. and so what what does the story of easter mean when we think about jesus as as kind of that queer martyr. 
want to talk a little bit about um, queerness, but first, mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm really I've been thinking a little bit about uh, reading that I think you and I are both familiar with um, by the Reverend Victoria Safford, where she talks about it's the title of it is called "Is This a Gay Church?" Is this a gay church? Yes, and yeah. it's um, it's about it's basically like her reflection, her qu- question a congregant came to her after um, they've done work around gay being welcoming to GLBT community. Um, it was quite a long time ago that I remember that that was written nineties, maybe, or early two thousands. Yeah. Something like that. But I, I, it's been coming to mind cause I was thinking it's, it's a kind, it's an expression of a kind of anxiety that I think you and I are both really familiar with around, um, being too gay. Yeah. And I guess what I what I what am really curious about in is just like were you afraid in preaching this message about that charge of being too gay and how did you how did you navigate that in yourself? Yeah, yeah, I was afraid. I, I like unless you're at like an MCC church. I I feel like as a queer person preaching, you always have this, this sense of like kind of a queerdometer in your sermons, <laughs> right? Like how, how gay did I, did, it does this sound? Because we, I mean, we had comments, right? That, that our congregants have said like, things are getting a little too gay or, you know, like, oh, we, you know, we can't really do more than two gay sermons in a row and like what qualifies as a gay sermon could be like you mentioned that you're in a queer relationship or it could be that you actually are using queerness as as a lens to look at the world and understand it and so I was definitely afraid of it I was afraid that you know Easter is this iconic story and so to bring queerness into that i was afraid that i mean unitarian universalists are generally like sketchy about easter the easter story in general for good reasons and then to like make that explicitly queer and like not in a academic way like i didn't preach it in like a hey we're gonna do a an introduction to queer theory 101 and this is how we might think about this sort of thing isn't this interesting from this like removed vantage point Mm -hmm. this was very much like within the paradigm both the paradigm of the story of the easter story and from kind of a queer theology lens so i was Mm -hmm. afraid that it would feel so removed from people's experiences that they wouldn't connect to it and it would be this like double punch of like i came to church on easter and they told a story that i don't connect with and then they made that story that i don't connect with even more distant from my reality Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be liberating it wouldn't be useful um and it would in fact like set set us back Mm -hmm. both on both fronts yeah on both (laughs) fronts Um, obviously you, you found your way through that though. Yeah. (laughs) So how, what, 
what gave you the clarity or courage or I don't know, whatever word you, what, what helped you move forward? It was the only sermon that I think was going to come out of me. I th So like I was sort of like forced into a corner. I, I don't know what your experience writing sermons, but sometimes like no matter what direction you go, you keep coming back to something and you and it's really hard to uh, uh, like avoid and you can really try and then you're just like tying yourself in knots. The other piece is I feel like there's a trust that we've built up in the congregation that, like, in these moments, you kind of test, honestly. You kind of say, like, okay, we are in this relationship in which you have asked me to come putting my truth through the fire, for my life through the fire of thought, to bring Emerson into this. Um, and this is, like, this is what's there. And... I was trusting that even if they hated it, they could see its utility in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Um, the, but I, all of that being said, I think the biggest piece of it that made it feel, I think there was two things that made it feel really compelling or I was feel, I felt really compelled to, to disregard those thoughts that said, don't do this. The first has been just all of the queer people that are within our congregation. They're, I mean, we are we a gay church? Yes. <laughs> I mean, we, we, you know, we, we have lots of gay people. We have lots of queer people. We have lots. Um, and it, and it kind of sucks to like have to not be able to speak directly from my lived experience and maybe their lived experience in, in an unapologetic way. Like, it's just, it's like a kind of a violence to not mm. get to do that because of other people's perceptions, because of like, what are the heteros? What are the cisgender folks going to think if we do this? Like, it's, it's just not okay. So that was like the first bit of like speaking directly to, to our, the, you know, the queers in our um I had a second thing. What was it? I forget. I think what I want to do is listen to the sermon and then come back and I have a number of other questions um yeah. that I want to come back to. But I think it'd be great to let's offer the sermon and then come back. The other day, my husband and I were walking around the neighborhood with our two friends slash neighbors who also happened to be a gay couple. We were doing this with our son who was riding along nearby on his skateboard. The relative calm and peace of the evening was shattered with the sound of a revving engine emanating from a large black pickup truck. The pickup truck was pulling out of a garage and onto the street where just a few hundred feet and around the corner, out of sight of the truck, we could see a bunch of children playing on the street. The truck was coming around the corner fast, weaving a bit, careening, a little unsteady looking. 
I'm not sure if it was actually speeding, but it was definitely acting reckless, bordering on dangerous. Now, thankfully, all of the kids hearing the truck had retreated to the sidewalk, and all of us stared as the truck went by, following the truck with our gaze. Pun intended. The truck had gotten a half block past us when it stopped, as did my heart, and it began to reverse. It reversed the half block, coming to stop right beside us, the driver's side window lowering to reveal a big man just a little older than us. You've got a problem, he said. Now, I've learned enough to realize that I don't need to attend every fight I've been invited to. And so I was ready to slink away. But one of my friends replied, yes, actually, you were driving rather recklessly with all of the kids playing. This didn't go over well. The man launched into a stream of vitriol, which included a few choice sexist and homophobic words. At one point, he said, what are you going to do, call the police? Which made me think in the past that is exactly what someone had done. To my shock, he legit said, I live right over there, let's go, inviting us into a physical altercation, four homos and one teenager against one raging man. Now, my inner panic alarm was sounding, but my friend who answered that initial question remained calm, grounded, and he was able to defuse the situation seemingly without batting an eyelash. The truck drove away as diesel fume washed over me. I looked over at him in awe. In awe of his calm, his principles stand. And as we were walking back, I realized that his groundedness stemmed from an inner stability. An inner knowledge that no threat of violence, no verbal abuse, no intimidation could stamp out his inner conviction, his worthiness, his dignity. When you're rooted in your own dignity, knowing that no one can take it away from you, you experience a freedom, a peace, in which there is no going back. Because you know as bad as it gets, no one can take it away from you. And there ain't nothing anyone can do to make you give it up or go back to before, to before you lived with the knowledge, this knowledge, in your bones. I wonder when you have experienced this power, even a shard of it. When you have said to yourself, I am never going back. That even as the forces rally to extinguish your inner flame, you know there's no going back to that person, to that way of life, to that way of thinking, to that former self, to that unloving state. The train has left the station and you have hit the point of no return. Now, of course, claiming this conviction of inner worth and dignity doesn't suddenly transform others, doesn't transform hate into respect, erasure into visibility, disgust into value. In fact, often the more you claim, the fiercer the blowback. As the forces of evil try to shrink you down to force you back into the closet, back onto the sidelines, back into silence, they remove your seat at the table, telling lies, gaslighting, and making you doubt your truth. 
crushing you with the sheer weight of indignity of unjust laws and bigotry, trying to crucify you and leave you on Good Friday with no hope of resurrection. This year, when I returned to the Gospels to reread the story of Easter, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as told in Christian scripture and marked during this their holiest of weeks, I found to my surprise a Jesus I was not expecting to find. Jesus arrived to Jerusalem to crowds of praise and adoration. For a person heralded as the Savior, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, the one who is foretold to upend the structures of power and bring freedom to the people who yearn for it, Jesus entered, not atop a horse as emperors would, but upon a lowly donkey, lumbering slowly. And in that figure, donkey-riding Jesus, this year, in the scriptures, I found queer Jesus. Queer Jesus, Sean? What are you talking about? Jesus wasn't gay. Stay with me. And it wasn't simply that the news of our time, the events of our days buzzing around in my mind cried out for a queer Jesus, because they do. The criminalization of needed medical care for trans kids in state after state, characterizing affirming health care as child abuse as a perversion on God's natural order, or the rollback in reproductive rights, or senators questioning the legality of gay marriage or interracial marriage at that, or the recent report that said a quarter of all queer youths have contemplated suicide last year. All of these wounds cry out for a queer Jesus to cleanse our temples, political and religious, of this hatred, to make our world a house of love for all peoples, to proclaim, as J. Hulme wrote, Blessed are the queers who love creation enough to live the truth of it, despite a world that tells them they cannot. But it wasn't just the need for queer Jesus. It was the reality that in the scripture I found one out and proud. Now, the word queer has a multitude of meanings. Queer as in the insult levied against those seen as perverted, depraved, and weird. Queer as the umbrella term for the alphabet mafia, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual communities. Queer as in identity for those of us who refuse to conform to the societal conceptions of normative gender and sexuality. Or queer as in the ideological stance and intentional subversion transgression of social norms for the sake of liberation and freedom. Now at first the queer Jesus... I found was a ghostly echo. Arriving in Jerusalem, he was arrested on trumped-up charges, made spectacle for all to see. A crowd gathers, the same crowd gathers, charging him with perverting the nation. A charge familiar to all queer people because we are accused of perversion by our very love, of perverting the natural order 
that a picture book featuring a family of same-sex loving is a diabolical recruiting scheme, that merely mentioning queer people to children is a form of grooming, echoing almost word-for-word word Anita Bryant's decade-old nonsense that if homosexuals can't reproduce, they must recruit. The crowd charges him, charges Jesus, with claiming to be God. A charge levied against trans people when they claim their truth and affirm it with their bodies. They are accused of playing God as if God was not a God of constant creation. And even though the authorities evaluating the evidence find nothing to substantiate these charges against Jesus, and they say as much to the crowd, there isn't no evidence of Jesus' guilt, they say. There is no evidence of his perversion. There is no evidence of election fraud. Oh, wait, that's the wrong sermon. That, that it is just like the attacks on queer and trans people right now. There is no evidence of its truths. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the crowds who have been whipped up into a fervor, conspiracies and misinformation peddled by the powerful linking grievances, real and imagined to the person of Jesus. He is branded queer, the insult, by popular edict. He is the problem, and every attempt to convince the crowd of his innocence just furthers their belief in his guilt. The crowd has turned, and we know this story. We know how a crowd can turn into a mob, how misinformation can left untreated, fester in wounds, real and imagined, spawning grievances, conspiracies, and a search for easy answers to complicated questions, how the country that elected the first black president would pivot to elect an open apologist for white nationalism. The crowd can turn, for they want a scapegoat, a person to blame for their struggles, for the way things are, not yet right or fair or just, just as election fraud or black and indigenous people of color or migrants and queers are used as scapegoats today, the people chanted away with him and Jesus is taken away to be killed. A perverted queer hung on a cross or on a fence post outside Laramie, a trans woman of color left for dead on the street, crucified none the same. I asked a Christian friend how the same crowd who adored Jesus one day could condemn him to death just a few days later. They suggested that it ultimately was because Jesus was not the kind of savior, the type of Messiah that the people were looking for. Jesus preached a revolution of the heart, of a way of treating one another that placed radical love at the center of human life. He spent time with the despised, those seen as unclean, unworthy of love. He wasn't respectable. For he proclaimed that those very people, the poor, the sick, the disabled, women and children, would be the first to experience God's love. He wasn't a military leader, a revolutionary that would take up arms against the Romans. He was a queer. His was a queer ministry. Then in a world that preached that by the sword salvation was realized, his queerness transgressed the conception of Savior. He was soft and tender. He spoke in riddles. He touched those people seen as untouchable, healing them from the stigma that kept them separate. He granted dignity and worthiness with his attention, his touch, and his care. And something about his queerness softened people. It opened them to a way of being that they longed for, 
They longed for freedom and joy and love, but that same longing also terrified them. It terrified them that freedom might be found in moments, not just in total revolutions, that dignity could be claimed even for the despised. For it is terrifying to be told that we could be free because when we believe it, we have to let the parts of ourselves that are untrue die to be reborn, to be resurrected into the truth of our belovedness. And because of these threats, the threats of a people awoken to their dignity, he was sent to after his death. Jesus' body was placed. In a tomb, the entrance covered by a large stone, and his disciples scattered. Having denied him and betrayed him, all hope seemed lost, all of them, except for the women, that is. For it is the women who knew Jesus, who, after his death, began the work of preparing his body for, bur for burial. It is so often the marginalized who have had to develop the grit to endure. This was their friend, their teacher. And despite the end having come, they arose early in the morning after the day of rest to tend to his earthly remains. Mary, Johanna, and Salome approached the tomb, asking themselves, who is going to roll away the stone? Not a trivial question, but as they arrive to do their sacred duty, they find the stone has been rolled away. Fearing the worst that their beloved, their beloved's body was stolen or desecrated in some way, they rush into the tomb to find it empty, an empty tomb. It truly was over. Their last kindness could not even be paid. But before they could give themselves over to their grief, two radiant figures appeared, blinding them at first. The two figures asked the women a question, a question that is the most important question for us as we hear this Easter story. The two radiant figures ask the women, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? The question hints at the reality of the resurrection. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? For Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Despite all the evidence, he is alive. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? And we could ask ourselves the same question, can't we? Why do we look for the living amongst the dead? Why do we cling to the old structures, to the ways of being that have failed us, that have led us and our planet to serve death and not life? Why do we keep turning to the structures of death, hoping this time we will find life there? Why are we afraid of letting them fall away so that we might be free to embrace life? The queer Jesus that I met in the story is the queerness of the resurrection. The tomb is the closet, and it is not the end of the story. The very act that you thought would be your end isn't. The story that you thought was over isn't. That the hope that you thought died will, in the words of the martyr Harvey Milk, never be silent. There is nothing queerer than the erasure of boundaries between what was thought of as fixed and opposite to find a more beautiful rainbow of life in between, a rainbow being the sign after all of God's love, having to reflect the light to find all the colors. You know, it's always been comical to me how much fear there is coming from certain Christians, mostly evangelicals, about queer and trans people specifically queer and trans people trying to recruit new members of the alphabet mafia. Side note, the fact that I'm preaching this sermon in a church on Easter is kind of a big something-something to those Christians.
Anyways, I've always found it comical that Christians are worried about queer and trans people trying to recruit new members because it's not like those same Christians are against recruiting. Even against recruiting children. These same Christians' best case scenario is to literally recruit the entire world to their team. To their team. Are they worried that the queers are going to do the same? Maybe they are worried that in a head-to-head -head competition, they might lose. That what they bring to the table of shame, hellfire, and denial of who we are might somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, but hear me out, not be as appealing to the masses as a queer gospel that says the closet need not be your home anymore. That the toxic theology that says somehow an all-loving, infinitely knowing God can't seem to find a way into your gay little life, or that the false or that false gospel of love the sinner hate the sin just doesn't cut it, can't withstand the power of a queer embrace that says, we will not just tolerate you, we will take pride in you as you walk into your truth, casting off all vestiges of selves that you wore to please others, ways of beings that confirmed, that conformed to the norm, but don't enliven your life that you can experiment with identity, with pronouns and names, with clothes and mannerisms and relationship structures until you happen into your truth, a truth for now or forever, and we will delight in it. Because here is my testimony as one queer person of faith. I ain't never going back into that damn closet, that tomb. Because I haven't ever found a queer person who hasn't found liberation and freedom and life from emerging from the other side of denial, from the tomb of closets and silence, and rolled away the stones to embrace their queer belovedness. I haven't found one person who has testified to me that they haven't found life in that embrace, that it was not worth it. We need not recruit because the truth does all the work for us. For even as parts of us that we once thought of as us are left behind, as we embrace an emerging queer becoming, we are resurrecting ourselves into the shape of love. And even with the discrimination, the hatred, the disgust, the internalized homophobia, transphobia, even as legislatures the country over target us and our kids, banning books that mention our mere existence, not one person has testified to me that they have not experienced a freedom, have not experienced life. And that is what the haters are afraid of. They're afraid that queers, that everyone really, will get a taste of dignity, experiencing the life-altering truth, and will realize that the grave has no power when the true life is held within. Crossing the threshold into the deep embrace of love, where power and freedom stir, power and freedom that is known deep in our bones that there ain't ill going back. Because when you know there ain't no going back to that tomb, to that closet, once a people have found their worthiness, there ain't nothing you can do to stamp out that spirit as much as you try. As many setbacks and laws and lynchings and segregations, once a people have claimed their inner worth, they become a danger for the powers at be, the powers of white supremacy, of transphobia, of homophobia, of shame, 
the powers that lie to us, that say that we must live forever on Good Friday, that it is our lot in life because of our nature, our wickedness, our so-called depravity, that we deserve to be where we are, deserve to be vilified, crucified, buried, and left for dead. For the grave has no sting when we know that silence equals death. Do not look for the living amongst the dead. Look for life where it is beyond the tomb. The radiant figures tell Mary and the other women to go and tell the disciples and anyone who will listen, I have seen the Lord, to testify to their experience. And even as they have questions about it, even as it was not clear what was to happen next, even as it was simply a shard of hope amongst a moment of deep despair, the angels say, you cannot stay in this place at the tomb at once once held you captive because love has risen. Hope has not gone silent. It will not be silent for the story is not over. I have seen the Lord and she is beautiful and she has gone before us. This is the queer story of Easter that despite all that occurs, once you leave the tomb behind and claim and claim resurrection into your dignity. There is no going back, and they can try to bury us, but somehow, despite all the setbacks, love has the last say. To paraphrase the Greek poet Dinos Christinopoulos, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds, because love just keeps coming back. When we claim it, it can never be taken away. So endeth the lesson of Queer Jesus. Amen. All right. All right. Okay, so, um, first of all, there were a lot of words there. So... <laughs> Somebody's going to be asking, did you ever take any breaths in the uh, recording? I didn't speed it up, if that's what people are thinking. That, that, that is how wonder. fast it came out. That is how fast it came out. <laughs> Anybody who was there live knows that You're that right. is. It, I think it, went out, it came out faster live, actually. Probably. I think so. Um, so I, I wanted to just, I wanted to, to I promise I'm going to get to the academic questions around queerness, um, which I do. Mm -hmm. I really want to talk about with you, but I have a couple more personal questions to mm -hmm. talk about first, which is um, I, I wanted to go back to this idea of um, the kind of the, the ways we modulate or don't queerness or difference or truth, our own personal truth in the context of our church. And I, I just, first of all, I need to share that, um, in, I wondered if you have the similar experience, but in my formation, I was actively told, don't mention any, like, don't talk about my partner in a sermon. Um, and don't, I mean, definitely don't tell gay stories. And if you do like once a year is plenty mm. and because you don't want to be labeled the gay minister. Um, and so I, I have had to like un unlearn those things or wonder if I could unlearn them. And if it was, uh, 
possible to be seen fully or to get to it's like the opposite of what you're trying to do which i think your your work is ex, trying to be expansive and um, that's the claim you're trying to make is to be expansively true mm. but instead the danger is being re reduced um and to be minimized and smushed yeah um in an identity so first of all i just want to just lift that like say that that's something that it happens it happens um in in my experience quite a lot um and i i think what one of the things that i i think makes it possible what you did is that there are two of us mm -hmm. and i mean on staff more than two but like we're preaching to a predominantly straight predominantly older um than us congregation and usually it's like one on hundreds <laughs> you know <laughs> mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there is some power in at least having you know not being not being like it there's impossibility not being reduced mm -hmm. because there's multiple versions um already it's harder to shrink it down um well so and, i guess i want to invite your reflections i'm just thinking like yeah. in the in our partnership of ministry how that plays out and how that and your own experience of being reduced or expanded and how after this sermon you feel about that i think the messages that i got were really well-meaning like well-meaning in the sense of hey there's this danger of this thing that happens mm -hmm. and we don't want it to happen to you yeah me too exactly like it wasn't people's like they, it wasn't like, hey, you need to get in that closet to do this job. It was like, right. hey, our our folks have some homophobia in them that they don't understand as homophobia, and, and they will, uh, they will bring it out under, like, with different clothes, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that can be dangerous for you professionally. So you so you better be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times, what that means is that. I feel like a lot of the gayness in this in, that I use is like either very strategically deployed, <laughs> right? It's like really essential to this to what I'm what I'm preaching about, um, because then it's like tactical. It's like tactical queerness, um, or it's something that's like really um, like incidentally gay. It's like gay in the sense of the people happen to be gay, but the content of it isn't uh, isn't imbued with a queerness, right? So it's like me and my husband got into this fight that anyone who's been in a relationship with another human might get into. Like, right. yeah, that's gay, but it's not like gay, gay. It's not like queer in its content. Um, and so I do feel... And I and still feel like restricted in speaking about um, like my queerness and, and what it looks like in my life because I like it feels like it's going to be too outside people's <laughs> point of reference. And I know mm -hmm. saying that just like triggers everyone's anxiety of like what what the heck's going on with Sean? But just but just like. <laughs> There's just like a paradigm that 
that I think my perspectives can embody that, that I do feel worried about judgment about in a way that would come from well-meaning people. Mm -hmm. And that for me to do theological reflection upon that and share that out would, would not go over well. And, and, and one of the, and like, you asked, like, how do I feel after this experience? Yeah. So the, the most fascinating thing for me was in hearing people's responses, hearing queer people's responses and like straight people's responses, there was, um, like a depth of, I think there was a lot of similarities in how people were responding. And that like, my hope wasn't just to like preach a queer sermon to queer people and like have straight people like voyeuristically watching my aim. And I feel like every time I've preached an explicitly queer sermon, it ends up here is that queerness is liberating. And it's liberating, not just for people who have same sex attraction or mm -hmm. who are not cisgender. It's liberating mm -hmm. actually for all of us. And that there is this, that, that, yeah, that queerness is liberating. And so to hear like heterosexual cisgendered people, or at least that's how they purport themselves to be, um, talk about the impact of it and, and, and the, how it moved them, um, even if they stifled the movement, a really interesting conversation with someone about how like they wanted to react viscerally to the sermon in a way that they stamped it out of themselves <laughs> which, which is not the it was the opposite of the message of the sermon but right but i get it <laughs> i get it but just that okay so that talking about queerness is actually speaking from a particularity from a particular vantage point that that accesses something universal it's that that um mysterious unity in our in our diversity right and actually we know that the more particular you can get often the more universal you get like right. that there's something that allows somebody's humanity and its particularity to to be to make you more accessible yeah um so let's just talk i want i, I have a couple ideas about that uh why why it works for the general um for regardless of how you identify mm -hmm. um but to get there i want to talk a little bit about this idea of queerness and um what you were really kind of what uh what the meaning of queer is that you were working with in the in the sermon you do a little bit of defining queerness but it mm -hmm. might have gone by really fast for people so yeah. um you and i were talking before the um before the service and acknowledging that for a lot of people, this would be the first time that they'd heard anything that was um, queer theology or queer theory, especially applied to Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those of us that have had some seminary training or queer theology, that's not new, but for a lot of people it is. So will you explain um, some of those basics of kind of where you are coming from, what this tradition is and what what it means to do queer theology. Yeah. I, I want to say one other thing first, which is yeah. that you said like the power of two of us. Yeah. 
like I sent you the like messy version of this. And I, I don't know if it would have if I would have felt as empowered to preach it if you wouldn't have said like there's something here. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's pretty critical. Like, I mean, I think that that. Like, if I think about me doing it. As preaching a sermon like this, I. I'm not sure I would if you weren't here. And um, I mean, that's important for people to know <laughs> that there is a. It's just so much harder to make it about one person. And and yeah, I mean, I I hope it like I give you some um, encouragement, but also that there's also an accountability to the queer part of the story in that, you know, there's a (laughs) kind of insider thing that you were trying to bring out to the world with some integrity. And, um, I felt that sense of, um, you know, being in that partnership of wanting to be accountable to our community and our traditions too. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Queer theology. Queer theology. So I talk about in the in in the sermon these like different different definitions of the word queer. And and the and the first one, right, is queer as like perverted of perversion, of like weird yeah, which is or the odd. Exegesis of Jesus was charged with right, right, exactly. Yeah. And and interestingly, you'd think that that would be an area of queerness that isn't like explored in queer theology, but it really is. Right. So queer theology and queer theory, you know, lives at this intersection of like the lived experiences of queer people. And queerness isn't just about, um, or isn't just simply about like same sex attraction or not being cisgender or being trans it it is about uh identities and and relationship practices and ways of inhabiting bodies and relation and relationships that that are seen by others as as perverse at times um transgressive definitely that's one of the other definitions of it um inhabiting a part of this community a connection to this community um and all of those definitions like all of those definitions come together to make this kind of constellation of things that we can think of as queer theory and queer theology there's it's not a set thing um and so i i didn't make up queer jesus that that is part of a tradition of of queer christians who held the bible as their sacred scripture in one hand and their lived experiences of being persecuted and also of finding god and finding faith within their lived experiences as queer people and 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 standing at the intersection of those two things, of being at the intersection of those two things, um, and saying, I actually, I don't think these two things are a contradiction. 
Like, I think there's a whole, there's a wholeness here, um, that, that says something about me and the world and God, and that that's a productive intersection to be at. Um, one of the reasons that I think that there's a few reasons why I think that, that this sermon hits so well to our whole congregation this year. But it includes um, the power of um, of a faith leader, a minister saying the word queer and Jesus at the same time. <laughs> and um, the particular, the forces that would like to make Jesus and queerness on opposite ends. Um, and the other thing that I think is, it's maybe not particular to this year, but one of the reasons that I think it strikes people as particularly radical is the um, kind of the ways that we we debate about Jesus's sexuality, as in, does it exist at all? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess what I, I the thing that I, I feel like people wonder about, you make a real disclaimer in the sermon about Jesus isn't gay, but I just wonder if you could, I- if if you could speak to the the components of queer theory and theology that are that are about in, uh, like inclusive of sexuality and just how that you see that or don't see that in this reading and did you do you mean to imply anything about that or not and i don't know just i feel like we should talk a little bit about that I remember I was in my undergrad, so I went to a Catholic school that was also a seminary. And so I took Catholic theology classes and we had a very vigorous uh, debate about whether or not Jesus could have an erection. Fully embodied. Fully embodied. He had a body. But, but then there were all of these questions, right? If he's without sin and we project the idea of like lust onto an erection, then like, is it sinful? So thus, therefore, Jesus wouldn't do it. I, I, I remember yep. rolling my eyes and just being like, really? Like, <laughs> this is the conversation we're having? <laughs> but I think it's true. So I definitely sidestep um, a whole part of queer theology, which is looking at the texts um, and seeing queer people there in ways that um, the scriptures will erase, or like the classic readings of the scriptures Mm -hmm. will erase them. I mean, there's beautiful examples, right? The the way Jesus speaks about the beloved disciple, I mean, there's a lot of words there that are used that, that you wouldn't use for someone that you're not lovers with. And yet they're used for this, this like male disciple we also don't know Jesus's and like anatomy. We don't know his identities, um, and yet you know we see in a way of being inhabiting relationships that are not gen like not traditionally gendered, like they don't conform to the the gendered expectations of a man in you know the first century in Palestine. Right, his willingness, particularly to be 
in relationship with women yes and with different sorts of women and right. have different different kind of closeness with women right in particular and you can you can look throughout the bible and you have these stories of you know david and jonathan is another example i i just know the gay boys so you, uh, you can jump say, in that's with my that. favorite one so right just like the these two men who are like it's like you read it and you're like, are they even pretending? It's very obvious to me. It's and like also, very. Why has that never been a Hollywood movie? I just that's what I've always wondered. Like to me, that is an epic story. Great what? relationship like, between the two of them in the midst of this. It's why? Like you David fighting Goliath. Like it's like, I think about the story of David and Goliath, and then thinking about like, queer David. I know. Like y'all, faggy David. Go, go, go read your. Um, your 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 Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, and pick up this story, and it is just impossible not to. If you put this lens on it, just to kind of go, oh wow, it's very obvious, actually. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. That's why that's one of my favorite stories of the whole, whole Bible. So I mean, it's I, quite problematic I, because of the various um various moments of sexual transgression on um David's part, but but that's also anyway. like very much a part of queer experience right yeah in terms of like conforming to relationship structures or relationships because they are societally accepted and not being able to inhabit those with you know with integrity what does that do um or even just the complexity of like does he need to be gay right like could he have, could he be bisexual? Could he be pansexual? Could, like, just these conceptions that that kind of go beyond. Um, well, and also, like, our whole notions of what that even means are modern notions. Oh, completely. And completely. so we read, we read clarity where there's, like, clarity was not even a thing. You know, we're trying to, like, make it precise when it could have but, been a lot more open. Right, but, but I think that the, the fascinating thing is that, like, evangelicals in the way they approach the Bible, which is to say, like, this is the word of God. And so like how you read it in English in the 21st century reveals its meaning. Like this is a, this powerful way of turning that around and saying, okay, sure. I'll mm -hmm. play on your, I'll play on your field. And guess what? I find queerness in your scripture. I find God's love for queer people in your scripture. What are you going to do about that? Like it's this radical claiming, you know, of, of like our, our worthiness to say that like the, these, like the, the things that make up queerness now have always been a part of humanity. And we have different societal understandings that have allowed them to be expressed in different ways. Um, and in some cultures, like it gets funneled into the mainstream in a way that then it doesn't seem queer because it's a part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, but yet it is to say, hey, this thing is like fundamentally what it means to be human. If it is what it means to be human, then what does it mean for God to not speak about it? And then to say, oh, wait, God did speak about it. And we can look at original meanings of the text and we can look at revealed meanings of the text and still find queerness there. Yeah, and, and so, you know, there's yeah. there's something you're getting at here that I think is the kind of the main reasons that I feel like people responded in the way they did, which, I mean, I'm not sure I've said that explicitly, but people were very positive about the sermon. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm sure there was somebody who was less positive, but the collective response was very positive in all three of our services. Um, And I think one of the reasons that I think that is, is it takes a, like a story that is problematic for a lot of people. Yeah. And that has been a source of, it's been flattened and um, read through an, a non-liberating lens for people, and which is um, amplified right now in our culture. And it gave like a, you know, a really different reading and said, this is a valid other way to read this same text. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's different cultural moments where that would be less powerful, but in this cultural moment, the like giving people, giving our people a read on Christian scripture and Christian tradition, which a lot of our folks come from. And if they don't come from it, they have it in our bigger social culture is a, just a huge gift and a huge um relief to say there are you can meet people on this playing field and still come to the kinds of conclusions that your heart tells you to come to um and i think it's for those of us that you know have gone through seminary and have gone through these kinds of things of 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 kind of re-encountering scripture it's like this great um secret tool that we know exists, but people, you know, there's a lot of um, trepidation about going towards it. So like one of the reasons I love Beasters because you just get, hey, you have permission to go give them this tool. So do you, did you like, tell me about the reactions afterwards and your own um your own reaction or kind of was there anything unexpected in how people reacted or um anything anybody said to you that was that stands out one person and this is like (laughs) it's like sean talk about how everyone that talked to you liked your sermon that's like a funny question to answer, but um, <laughs> like one person said, well, I mean, a lot of people will say, I like your sermon that like that, like, okay, yeah. thank you. But I don't, but I don't like, generally believe people who say that because right, unless you so say something specific, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. Um, one person spoke about like how in it, in the experience, they understood like charismatic worship, mm. like the the movement of like how people will like speak in tongues or like move their bodies or like feel kind of the spirit moving. That was unexpected. I definitely did not, you know, think that it would move people that way. And, you know, that it came from a queer person. So I think that well, and it, it gets to that, like what you were s- starting to say earlier that, you know, you were not like giving them queer theory, actually, no. you were not giving a traditional you, you like with, I did, I used to write sermons with footnotes. Um, I haven't done that in a while, but like, that's a pretty standard Unitarian 
um, sermon might include some footnotes of cite your sources. I don't, you did quote some people, but quoting was not the point. No. You use those quotes quite poetically. Mm-hmm. So some of that is like a style that you chose going in, which was much more um, charismatic than intellectual. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm still kind of in a place of um, curiosity about the style, to be honest, in that it feels very authentic and also very um, uncomfortable. Mm. For you? Yeah. Like I have a trepidation about it. Because I, I think there's a piece of me that that thinks that sermons are about transferring information or convincing people of something versus being a, a portal to an experience. Mm, I, I actually, well, the word I would use about what you were up to is called proclamation. Hmm. Like, mm. I, I think you were proclaiming a truth mm -hmm. um, in various ways. <laughs> and the only thing I will say, and this is, I just want to be really clear. I 100% believe in masks. But in this instance, I wish you didn't have a mask on. <laughs> because I really wondered how it was inhibiting your body and your capacity to fully be present in the spoken word of it. And um, I, I think at some point, like doing that whole sermon again with people without masks would be a really interesting experience because here you are talking about something so liberating and so embodied and, you know, three quarters of your face are, is covered up. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, it, I, it's interesting to think about your trepidation about it. There's something about, like, our Unitarian, like, liberal thing, which is, like, if you can't, like, we both center experience, like, personal experience, but we also need it to be backed up. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a way in which it's a, it's a qualified yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, Sean, you're 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 resting on hours and hours of academic theory that you have absorbed up until this point. Mm -hmm. It's just by the point you got to the sermon, you didn't need to tell everybody that because you had it deep in your soul. Right. And so instead you could trust that um seed. And let it unfold. I mean, I think that I, I also think that that even though you're saying it's not a very traditional Unitarian sermon, I think it's one of the most Unitarian, like straight up traditional Unitarian messages I've heard in a long time, which is you were uh, relying yes. on a message of individual dignity, inherent, yeah. inherent dignity, inherent worth as the mm -hmm. core of your like it was your through line through the whole and that no yeah. one can take away that inherent dignity. And you did that as like it was. And you were doing a Unitarian reading of, of Jesus. 
So I thought it was a very, even though the style was different, a very traditional Unitarian sermon. I think in, 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 in core message. Yes. I mean, I think I kind of stumbled into this line that, <laughs> that I sort of love, which is where I said, I have to actually look and see if it's in the recording. I can't remember if I just, if I snuck it in for the, uh, the live one, which is that, um, like that we don't, that queer people don't need to recruit because the truth does all the recruiting for us. It's in, it's in the recording. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> because there, there is something so fundamentally you, you about that, mm -hmm. that proclamation. I thought that too, that there, there is something where we just keep saying that the truth, I was like theater, it was like theater Parker to me, you know, it was like, there's something very, that, that the truth is our religion. And that, because there's this misnomer that says, you know, liberal progressive people of faith are so wishy-washy and the Unitarian Universalists can believe anything they want to believe. Mm. And it's like, no, because like truth, it, it recruits you, right? It's not just as simple as like, oh, today I want to go believe this. Mm -hmm. Like I, there's a lot of beliefs that I wish I had that I, that I can't square with my lived experience. And so to, to, to say that we are followers of truth, you know, that, that, that is Parker, that truth is our religion, it, which it, it, we have a really complicated understanding of truth. Truth is multivocal, multi-layered, evolving, shifting, shifting. Mm -hmm. But but still to say, there's something that happens when you stumble into your truth. That that you like that you, it recruits you to to a cause that is greater than yourself, and more aligned with yourself than you than you thought. That you're you're willing to let parts of you that you thought were you like die or let go of because of where it's sending you. I mean, that feels so core to the message that we are preaching and so antithetical to some of these other messages out there that say, actually, this truth that is yours is like the, the devil, like with trying to capture you. Or, or society's brainwashing, or gr you've been groomed by, by everyone else. <laughs> to, to, that your truth isn't actually yours; it's someone else's. Like, what an insidious thing to say. You know what I think the theological claim is, though, that we're making. It, I realize, as you said that, is that there is something that when something is deeply true in you, it is also God's truth. Mm. And that I think that there's a binary division that some Christ, some Christians, some evangelicals would like to make or make. Right. That there's God's truth and then there's your truth. So you're always listening for where is God's truth and rejecting your own sense of truth yeah. um, because you want to submit to God's truth. And, you know, there there is, a, I, I actually really respect the humility in that proposition 
in that what I see in it is there's a deep like a, a willingness to submit your ego to something mm-hmm. larger. But what we're saying is that there like w- there is there's a place where of alignment and that we're listening for is the deep yes in you that aligns with a deeper yes of life as a whole and that that's God's truth and that there's no there's no dividing you from God's truth your deepest truth and God's deepest truth those those are inseparable and I think that's like that's such a um an incredible theological claim um and I think that's why you say well well I can't just believe whatever I want. That might be your truth, but it's not God's truth because there is something where, you know, there is something deeper you have to submit to. Um, And so I I think that we don't often recognize what a huge theological claim we are making and making that kind of acknowledgement um, that's at the core of Unitarian Universalism. There's like a, a humility, like you, 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 talked about the humility of that God's truth, our truth thing. There's also the hubris that has to go with it mm. to say that we know what God's truth is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the, that's the conundrum that we're trying to solve, right? Is where do we step out hubristically to claim that there is that, that a, a truth that is greater than just our own. And you know, many people will root that in scripture or a particular interpretation of scripture say, to, a particular to find that. Read of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, other people will, you know, it'll it'll come down to to reason, which is a, a different a different faith structure, right? Um, I remember reading a great study that talked about how if you uh, tend to believe in scientists, it's not so much because you believe in reason, but it's that you decided to put your faith in scientists. <laughs> Mm. Like that's just like it's a it's a worldview, um, it's a worldview I I, I happen to share, um, but it, it is a faith stance. It's good to remember that it it too is a transference of a certain trust, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to answer that question of like, okay, how do I how do I live in this world and put um, put a stake out there that's not just me mm-hmm. in the in this truth game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the danger with traditions that um, that hold so um, that have such a tight grasp on what they think God would say. Not that I think God says things in words, but you know, like. On, on the deepest truth, when they hold it so tightly, there's, there's a rigidity in how they have to encounter the world mm-hmm. because they're holding on to that so strong. And that's not like the orientation that I think our faith calls us as progressives to encounter the world is not, is not a, um, it's not a posture of rigidity, right? It's it's a posture of of curiosity and of humility, of, of openness, and of 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 like of trusting your like the oh, there's like a poetic way that Mary Oliver would say it. 
like tr- trusting the the constellation of cells and feelings that are yourself that they have something to say if not everything but something to say about the nature of the universe the nature of you and that you don't have to give that up you don't have to give that up to a book you don't have to get up to another person it's not the full story but it but it is a part of the story and i think that's the danger in these other spaces is they they tell you that the only story your only story is is made up by someone else or that this way of interpreting truth is the only way of interpreting truth yeah yeah well thank you for the bold easter message and for finding that well, for preaching the only sermon that you could preach. And for this good conversation, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for the conversation. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure to uh, fill in for Sean this week and uh, host and turn the tables and get to learn more about what goes on in Sean's brain. Um, next Danger. week, my guess is you'll be you'll be safely back in Sean's hands. But then um, I'm but gone for a while. Then, and then, oh right, so maybe let's just say, um, who's is the podcast going to continue over the summer? Or are we going to take a break? The podcast is going to continue. I think uh, Reverend Elaine is going to step in as our primary host while I am sabbaticaling. So that yeah, is what's sabbatical in starts weeks. in a couple weeks, and um, then we'll see you back here in October, where I will look forward to. I'm. Um, we'll just set a date to interview you on this podcast for about all of the wonderful adventures that you got up to in the last five months. Who knows which Jesuses I will have met <laughs> during my travels? Who knows? I'm guessing that many of them will be queer. I hope so. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.